Hello, all you leadership educators out there, and welcome to Real Leadership for Real People, the NASPA SLPKC podcast where we amplify true voices of leadership education. We are your hosts this season, Kathy Guthrie, Pete new and Cameron Beatty. As your primary host, you will hear me, Kathy, in each episode this season, where we focus on socially just and culturally relevant leadership learning. I am so thankful that we have the space to continue this much needed conversation. And not only do I get to engage with two of my favorite people, V and Cameron, but I'm excited for the conversations with our incredible lineup of folks. I serve as a faculty member in the higher education program at Florida State University and direct the Leadership Learning Research Center. As I was preparing for this, I realized I am starting my 14th year at Florida State University. It really is hard to believe. Before coming to Florida State, I spent eight years as a student affairs practitioner where I focused in community engagement work and student activities and programming. I also spent two years as a teaching faculty creating a service learning and leadership department at the University of Illinois at Springfield. As one of your co-hosts, you will hear me, V, in episodes two through five of this season, where we highlight Shifting the Mindset, which is our upcoming book in socially just leadership education. I am an assistant professor of organizational and community leadership at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, I'm originally from New York, but I've spent most of my life in Florida, uh, including 25 years I lived in Miami specifically. I have my undergraduate degree as well as my master's from the University of Miami, and I also worked at the University of Miami for over 10 years, first as an academic and career advisor in residence, and later as the university's academic ombudsperson. Here at the University of Illinois, I teach courses in leadership communications and collaborative leadership. This fall, I'll be taking on a course in leadership and ethics. And this upcoming spring, I'll be teaching a brand new course I'm currently developing in social social justice leadership. Uh, My research focuses on the durable gains associated with leadership development experiences. As one of your other co-hosts, you will hear me, Cameron, in episodes six through nine with Kathy, as we engage with our contributors to the forthcoming book, Operationalizing Culturally Relevant Leadership Learning. I'm currently an assistant professor in the undergraduate leadership studies program and our higher education program at Florida State University. I also conduct research and support the Leadership Learning Research Center. I previously directed the undergraduate leadership studies program and global leadership study abroad to Sweden program at Iowa State University, and I have experience in advising and supporting sorority and fraternity life at Iowa State and co-advising the union board at Indiana University. Uh, This is so great being in this space with the both of you and being able to do this whole season together. Super excited. (laughs) Well, just so we can give our listeners, we have selected guests for each episode who have contributed to the continuing evolution of leadership education really towards social justice and cultural relevance. In real leadership for real people, you will get to know a bit more about them as people, the nature of their work and their vision for a fairer and more equitable future. While each person's story is different, we will use a few key questions to get at the heart of who they are, what they are doing and why this work matters. But it's only fair that we answer some of the same questions posed to them in the upcoming weeks. Each episode, we'll get started with a few warm-up questions. <laughs> Why don't we start with a few of those right now? Kathy, Cameron, what song do you love to sing when you're alone in the car? 
So, oh goodness. <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> Kathy, I, I, I want to guess what you would say, but I'm, I'm interested to hear your answer. <laughs> oh, are you sure? I, I love this. I'm laughing. First of all, we both jump in because I know that all three of us love music, but <laughs> Cameron, you know, we are always talking music. You know, I will just say that I don't know if you could guess this or not, but <laughs> life is a highway. Life is a highway. That one, yeah. Love, love that song. And I'm thinking of it, was it Tom Cochran that sang it originally? And then I think Rascal Flats in the cartoon Cars, right? Eight-year-old daughter, right? <laughs> know this. But that is a really fun song to belt out in the car. What about you? For So if you know me, then you know that Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter holds a very special place in my heart. So I, it's a Beyonce song and it's Love on Top. Mm. And uh, the song is, it's a great song, but the song is also a difficult song if you're a singer. I'm not a singer, but I'm assuming that it's a difficult song also if you're a singer because it modulates. And I just sound horrible and I'm like screaming at the top of my lungs, not on key, but I'm in the car by myself. And whenever it comes on, like there's, there's just joy in the world. Oh, I love it. I thought it would be a Beyonce song. <laughs> Me? Oh, I got to hear this. I'm glad this question isn't like, what song do you sing well alone in the car? Because this, <laughs> the song I'm thinking of is not a song I sing well, but it's uh, John Legend's All of Me. Uh, it is. I So for a non-singer, that's a hard song to sing. I don't know if for a singer, if it's difficult or not, but like John Legend's so great. And definitely when I'm having a rough day or like a really great day, there's always like a John Legend song that fits that mood for me. So that's what I tend to go to. And lyrically, it's such a good song too. Good lyrics. Mm -hmm. So Kathy and B, if you could only eat one food or meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Go for it, V. I've got my answer. And it's like not the healthiest option in the world. Over the course of the podcast, we definitely had some folks who gave us some really good healthy options for, for comfort foods or for last meals for the rest of their lives. Um, in, in my culture, uh, dal and rice is a pretty like standard staple. So if you're not familiar with dal, it's essentially a gravy that's made from yellow split peas. And when I was growing up, I was like, caught in this schism between like really wanting to be American and eating like hot dogs and hamburgers like all of my friends and coming home to like beef stews and curries which I didn't want to eat but were like culturally relevant so my parents and their like infinite wisdom had a way of compromising one of my favorite dishes as a kid was dal and rice and fried chicken so like if I could only eat one food for the rest of my life it would be my mom's dal and rice and fried chicken what about that's you Kathy a, that sounds really good that sounds like a good combination. So I grew up just south of Chicago, and I will say that that has influenced my favorite food. Um, I am pizza all the way. Like it is a simple meal. You can make it, you can get it out, but you can put all kinds of different toppings on it. And if I, that was the one thing that I had to eat for the rest of my life, it would be all different ways in um, my family. Team Guthrie, which is my partner and my daughter and I, we call ourselves Team Guthrie. We have pizza every Friday night. And there'll be times where it's just something we do. We have pizza every Friday night. And there'll be times when Brian, my partner, and I will be like, ooh, can we have pizza? It's, only, it's Wednesday. Can we try something? And our daughter's like, no, not pizza again. And we're like, are you our daughter? <laughs> because he also loves pizza. So I pizza, yep, Cameron. <laughs> I love, so I love a potato 
And I love a potato anyway. <laughs> anyway, I love a potato chip. I love a baked potato. I love a mashed potato. I, I love French fries. I just like, I, and I never really thought about this until you all asked this question be, to me before. And I was like, oh, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with with potatoes, and I've never really admitted that. So I'm glad this is a safe space where I can come out and and let you all know my obsession with potatoes. I love it. I love it. All right, the last warm up question, V and Cameron, who or what first sparked your interest in leadership? So I can respond to that first. Um, in high school, I uh, was on the chess team. Shocking, I know, right? For those of you that know me, that's that's brand new, you know, unexpected information. Uh, and our advisor, Mr. Pizzo, shout out to Mr. Pizzo if you're listening to this, uh, was our advisor. He was our coach, basically. And so we, as you do, you know, you spend a lot of time with your advisory. We went on trips with him. We went to tournaments with him. And he gave us as, probably as much life advice as he did, you know, tips on how to play chess better. And when we asked him about his education, he told us that he had a master's degree in leadership. And that was like shocking to me because I, at that point in my life, I didn't know leadership was something you could study. I just thought it was like a thing people did. And he really... Uh, opened my eyes to the fact that this is thing, something that people study, people can practice it, you can learn it, like all of the things that I spend my time teaching my students was something that somebody just kind of in between chess matches taught me all about. And uh, I still play chess and I still teach chess. But the, you know, the, the, the linkage between these two things has sort of been burned into my brain um, from a very young age. And now I have a hard time of thinking of one without thinking about the other. So I know that that had to have been one of the first instances in my life where uh, leadership became something I was paying attention to. What about you, Cameron? Yeah, for me, it was, um, I've been reflecting, I love this question and I love that we're gonna pose it to, to our guests because it's just so, it's just an insightful question of how people arrive and think about and how leadership has evolved for each person. For me, I was thinking about being, we were church kids, so we did just everything at church. So it was youth choir, drill team, um, altar boy, like we were just really involved in church when I was younger. And I remember youth choir, me and my sister, uh, we would always sit next to each other. It was just, you know, all, all, all age ranges of kids in the youth choir. And I remember the pianist would call me up and she's like, stand in front and like direct them. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell, what does that mean? And I'm like probably first grade. And I'm like just moving my hands to the beat of the song. And people had to follow me. Like I got to cut them off. I got to hold on to note longer. Um, and I was like, oh, this is a lot of power, quote unquote. Um, and it really got me like sparked my interest into, oh, they have to, they have to follow me. I am their leader in a sense of everyone's looking at us in, in the song. And that was like my first spark of, oh, well, maybe I could be a leader at school or maybe I can get involved at school. And it's, it was very positional in the sense, in the sense of like leader follower. But it was like my first like click that, oh, people, people, people have to follow you if you're put in a position. And then what, it, what does that mean for, for, you, for you being able to ha having to guide them? Uh, but I was thinking about reflecting on this. I was like, let me go back to childhood. And it was really youth choir um, as a kid. What about you, Kathy? You know, in reflection of this, I went back to my childhood as well. And I grew up on a, a hog farm in central Illinois, actually in between Champaign-Urbana, where V is right now, and Kankakee. So like I mentioned earlier, south of Chicago. But I was really involved in 4-H. And for those of you who don't know what 4-H is, it's part of land-grant institutions that they have extension offices in each of the counties that extend education of the university into the community. And so 
I was a 4-H kid starting as early as I could could become a member. But I think about all that I did in my 4-H group where we would visit nursing homes weekly and sing and visit with the residents. We would plant trees. We did all kinds of service. Um, that was the community I grew up in was 650 people. So a very small community. And when I think about leadership, it was about that community. And for example, one time a tornado came through our area and knocked down a, actually a, a small business in town and someone's barn and a house. And it was literally like the community came together and built each one of those up. And so I, when I think about it, it was through 4-H that I learned about leadership in the sense of community. And so that, I think, and this has taken a lot of reflection. We didn't necessarily call it leadership, right? But as I continue on my journey and other people and have had conversations and have been really important in my journey, I think back, like, that's the first time that's really sparked my interest in, wow, how do I continue to do and move things forward in a community? And it was all around this concept of coming together and doing something for, for the betterment of that community. So yeah, 4-H. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really great. I think for as long as the three of us have known each other, I think this might be the first time we've actually told those stories to one another about our start in this field. Um, and one of the great things about it is as we move through this season, we'll get to hear these stories from all of the people who are joining us, the ones that we have been working with for years and the ones that we just sort of uh, have gotten to know more recently in these projects. And all of our audience gets to benefit from hearing these things from them as well, right? So when we see them at conferences or uh, read something that they've written, there's a context, there's a, a framework to kind of understand where they're coming from in ways that if you just pick up a book, you just, you might make assumptions and those assumptions might not be correct. And, you know, having a more accurate radar to understand how someone is telling their story and why I think matters. I think it makes a big difference on how we, how we learn to accept that information. Well, and I love the fact that it's about the practice of leadership, right? Like that's how I answered. And then how also leadership, you can study it because those are very, yes, they're intertwined and absolutely influence each other, but it's also very different because then I think about ooh, who sparked my interest in leadership education. That's different than, oh my gosh, what sparked my interest in leadership as a process and a practice. And so I even love that because I'm sure our guests will say different throughout in that question. So I, I love that. Yeah. That among others. So as we are thinking about moving forward throughout the season, uh, we will have more icebreaker questions and different icebreaker questions uh, for our guests as we get to know them better as well. Uh, so for a little bit of context, um, the three of us have been working together on two books, which are either on their way or have already been published this year. Kathy and I have co-edited Shifting the Mindset, Socially Just Leadership Education, which is actually a follow-up to our 2018 book, Changing the Narrative, Socially Just Leadership Education. Kathy and Cameron have been developing a book on operationalizing culturally relevant leadership learning. Our guests this season are the authors and author teams of the chapters from those works. To better prepare you for the stories they will tell, it might be helpful for us to share some stories of our own. To, to, the, to that end, we have a few 
questions to help understand where each of us are coming from, Kathy V. Um, can you briefly summarize each of the two books and give the audience a sense of what might they expect from each of those? So I can speak a little bit on shifting the mindset. Uh, again, as a follow-up text to something we previously written, you might believe, oh, I have to have read the first book in order to understand the second book. And our text isn't really like that. Anybody could pick up either book and hopefully find something useful or helpful uh, in either one. Um, so in this particular text, we've got about 40 authors who across uh, 22 chapters really help us understand and deconstruct and potentially reconstruct for ourselves uh, how social justice intersects with leadership education. Um, we take a two-part approach to this book, where in the first part, we talk a little bit about the interactions and dynamics associated with social identity. And in the later chapters, we talk more about context. So in the book itself, and on this first half of the season, you'll hear a little bit about uh, leadership education among Native students, among Asian American students, uh, students who have LGB identities, uh, uh, students who are women, uh, students that identify as men of color, uh, and, and student employees. And as we move into some of the contextual pieces, you'll hear a little bit about uh, ethics, you'll read a little bit about uh, how to apply the culturally relevant leadership learning model, and some emerging frontiers in leadership education. Unfortunately, not all of those authors and author teams can join us, but the ones who are were able to make the time and space for us, we are incredibly grateful to have their voices as part of this experience. Oh, and I love this, this text because it is, like you said, a follow-up or a continuation of the conversation in the first book. And I think we all can agree that we probably could have several other books in this series because there's this conversation is just beginning. But the, the second book that we're focusing on this season is the Operationalizing Culturally Relevant Leadership Learning, which Cameron and I um, spent the winter co-authoring. I mean, it's been actually like a two-year process, but we really honed in, in this past winter and got it um, to see to the publisher and to that to that point. But this book really interrogates culturally relevant leadership learning and works to move it forward and how we operationalize it. And in it, we were able to collect 51 narratives of how educators are actually using CRLL in various ways and in various contexts. And we honor that each of our contexts are different in how we engage in building and developing leadership learning opportunities, whether that is in delivering programs in a co-curricular format or in a curricular format. It depends on what types of institution we're a part of, whether it's public or private, um, religious affiliated or based, the function areas that we work in, all of that matters and how we're able to really operationalize culturally relevant leadership learning. First, a little bit of history about CRLL. It actually started, the concept started in 2013 publication, which is uh, ASH monograph. The Association for Study of Higher Education had a series that produced monographs, and it really explored leadership development of students from diverse backgrounds. So of course, this writing started in about 2011 to be published in 2013. And then in 2016, the Myself and the co-authors, Dr. Bertrand um, Jones, Tamara Bertrand Jones, and Dr. Laura Osteen, we co-edited an issue of the New Directions for Student Leadership that was around culturally relevant leadership learning, where we brought together a team of 
authors that just really explored this. And then in 2017, continued to say, how do we practice CRLL? And there was a journal of leadership studies, and it was a symposium that actually V and I were able to co-edit. Now, I provide all of that background because it just shows how the conversation needs to continue to evolve. And we need more people involved and engaged in this work, and that we need to interrogate it because we believe that any type of model or theory is only as good as it can be put into practice and make positive change. And so we, Cameron and I, we had long conversations about what we really want to do is interrogate what is happening and how do we, it's not perfect, definitely not, but how do we change and operationalize it to make it so it fits these different contexts. And so with the 51 narratives that we were able to to collect and for people to provide us with how they're actually using it, Four areas emerged. We have the self-work, which really is personal and professional, co-curricular contexts, academic contexts, and then in scholarship. And so we're excited how this turned out um, and excited for it to get into hands and to be able to have conversations. Cameron, I know I missed a ton because this has been a journey that we've been on together. What did I miss about this book? <laughs> No, no, I think I think you hit it. What 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 I'm really excited about is that anybody can pick it up if you identify as a leadership educator. Um, and I think you hit the point, but just to just to amplify it is is oftentimes we think we're doing leadership education by ourselves in our silo or in our own functional area. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from what's happening in curricular, can learn from co-curricular, co-curricular can learn from curricular. If you're not doing the self-work as a leadership educator, then you're probably doing leadership education wrong. And I think this book um, allows people to be vulnerable and, and interrogate their own process of, of where they are and thinking about um, continuing to advance the work in a critical social justice, culturally relevant, culturally relevant way. Oftentimes we we teach leadership education the way we learned it. And what I love about uh, CRLL is it allows the leadership educator to think about their own identity, capacity, and efficacy in leadership before they actually engage with learners to, to think about their own. Um, and the other thing is, is the context, right? In context of environment, context of situation, context of time and place. Um, sometimes we think leadership education can be cookie cutter or copied. If it, ha if it happened at Illinois, it's gonna work at Florida State. And what I love about ZRLL is it asks you to think critically about your own context and where you are. What's the history? What's what's time and place? Where has the campus been um, in terms of campus climate? Where's the campus now? How do, what does that mean for leadership education? So I think the book allows us to really make meaning of where we are, no matter what where we sit in leadership education. Yes, for sure. I, I appreciate that. And I think part of that is our lived experiences and how, again, that self-work as leadership educators. Well, and I will even say and back up just a little bit, when we say leadership educators, we're saying anyone who is doing, you know, providing leadership learning opportunities. And so that is definitely, I truly believe all student affairs professionals are doing leadership development work. And so I want to acknowledge that and honor that no matter what function area you're in, you're often asked, hey, can you put together a leadership development <laughs> program? I'm Everyone's smiling and nodding their heads. Like that happens. I remember when I did conduct and I was doing leadership development for the conduct board full of students. And so this really is for all that are doing the leadership learning work. So those leadership educators want to define that that is all of us in student affairs um, and beyond, right? I think I would even say all of us in higher education because we are 
having those conversations with students. But going back to the lived experiences, that really makes a difference in how our lens and how we engage in this work as an educator and as a leadership educator. So Cameron and V, could you share a little bit more about your lived experiences, whether that's personal, professional, and how that has shaped your understanding of leadership and leadership practice? I was thinking about um, this question in the sense of, um, of of how I how my where did my thinking shift about leadership, and I was thinking about uh, being in a master's program at any university in the higher ed student affairs program, and we had to write a, we had to write a theory paper and we had to create our own kind of theory, and I was obsessed. Obs- I don't think I've ever told her this. I was obsessed with Susan Comavez and the lid model. I was like, oh, there's stages and I experienced this and I was just so connect. I was just so, I was like, it jumped off the page um, of all the theories we had read. Um, and I was like, ah, I love lead. Like I was all about leadership. I was engaging in uh, 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 an assistantship that was centered around leadership. And I was like, oh, I, I just wanted to read everything that she ever wrote. And I remember being at a, <laughs> being at an ACP, this is so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm telling this story. I believe I was at an ACPA and my advisor um, and somebody I worked closely with was Vasi Torres. And um, Vasi knew I had wrote this paper and she knew how influential that Susan's work was to me. And we're going up the escalator and like Susan's coming down and she's like, oh, there's Su- oh let's go back. We're going to go back and talk to Susan so you can meet her. And I'm like, it's like I met Beyonce, right? Of, and of course, we know that, you know, we put we put these scholars on a pedestal that they don't belong. Um, but it was it was I was just always influenced by by suit by the social and it was obviously um, Susan didn't do the the, uh, the lid model by herself. Um, there were contributors. Um, but I was thinking about that's like the first scholar that I was just I held on to as far as their work and wanted to read everything about leadership. Years later, I go to a doctoral program and I'm like, oh, I want to critique the Lynn model, right? Like, I think the Lynn model has some holes in it um, when thinking about intersecting identities. How do we think about leadership identity in the context of social identities and other things? And what does this mean specifically for students of color and how they have a added burden of navigating racism through their leadership experience? Um, and I just think about like that initial picking up that article that I fell in love with has contributed to now how I think I show up um, as a as a leadership educator, as a leadership scholar. Um, and it's, I think it's just been really influential um, in, in, in ways that I, now I have a relationship with Susan where I can call her up that I never thought that I would have when I was, saw her going down the escalator, right? So I just appreciate that. Dean, That's what about great- you? I was going to say, that's a great story. Like, I think just the, the, the imagery of just meeting somebody who you idolize in real life is such a human experience, right? And then just dealing with the, oh, what do I do now <laughs> kind of thing. Um, uh, for me, I was so in college, I was a student leader. I was a resident assistant. And I always had a hard time connecting to that as a leadership role, mainly because I just felt like a manager. Um, but I didn't really have the language at that point to kind of articulate that that sentiment. And a lot of what I had been taught about what leadership was and what leaders do, I just couldn't see myself in it. I didn't see myself reflected in it. My values didn't seem to match what I was being told I was supposed to value. 
to the point where even after my 10 year career, when I left student affairs, um, I still remember my, at my going away party, uh, the senior vice provost and dean of the university publicly thanked me from my leadership. And I sat there thinking to myself, but I didn't lead. I just managed. I just took responsibility for things. I just was accountable when something had an outcome. And it, it never really, like I, that dissonance has kind of always sat with me. And so it really shapes my understanding of leadership and leadership practice because it forces me to remember that someone who's listening to me is also going through their form of that dissonance. And so, you know, Cameron, to your point about many leadership educators teach the way we've been taught, that my internal dissonance drives me to seek new and different ways of leading and to teach leadership because what I had been given never really fit. And if it didn't fit me, why am I going to keep trying to make something not fit someone else? And I, I carry that with me. And sometimes it's big and sometimes it's small, but it's always there. And that's really what I think more than anything else kind of shapes the way I go about doing that kind of thing. Oh, that's incredible, both of you. Thank you for sharing. I, you know, for me, I go back to that community aspect that I had mentioned whenever I'm thinking through this, I was like 4-H, but also the community. When I, um, it was one of those moments when I was finishing up my master's degree um, at Illinois State University in higher education, right after I graduated, I actually was questioning whether higher education was the right context for me and took a position with extension, with the um, Illinois extension, but I was doing community organizing work. And so I remember I was in that position for two years and that when I left that community organizing work, I remember that this individual in the University of Illinois system said to me, thank you for leading this group to community, to organize this community. And I paused and I was like, I didn't lead anyone, right? I was in a community and we were doing this work together. And I actually pushed against that leader identity. I was like, I am not a leader. I'm a part of something bigger. And it was a community of us that worked together. When I left that community organizing position, I actually went and became the director of the Office of Volunteer Programs at the University of Illinois while I was pursuing, pursuing my PhD. And so in that time, I did a lot, of course, a lot of work within the community, but it was really when that was when I started realizing that leadership was about service not servant leadership. I'm not talking about that theory. I'm really talking about when you're engaging in the practice of leadership, that it's with the community. And yes, there's part of that relational piece, but for me, it's like, how do we engage together? And that's collective work to move forward in what we're trying to move forward in. And so that collectiveness, that community piece was really as I really think about what's consistent in my life, that community is such an important part and that leadership is about serving. Because I'll never forget someone asked me, it's like, so what do you think your purpose in life is? Now talk about a, right, talk about a question. But I was like, oh, I'm here to serve. I don't know if it's through education, if it's whatever that is, I'm here just to, you know, be in service to others. And so that, that lived experience. And I think growing up in that small community, and having that experience really has stayed with me and then community organizing and then working with the Office of Volunteer Programs and it still continues and how do we collectively, collectively do that work? Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think 
<clears throat> these stories, these origin stories in many cases are so important because we're, we're always writing our stories, right? Like the pen doesn't get put down just because we've got a certain level of education or have a particular position or role. We're always writing these stories and it's our job to like wield that pen in responsible, I think in useful ways. Um, I'm curious from, to hear from either, from both of you rather, um, if there are any ideas or sentiments or thoughts, models, what inspiration do you draw from, from outside of leadership education that you bring back to your thinking about this work? Yeah, I, uh, v, I was thinking about this um, and, it, and I was thinking about it because I reread a book uh, last summer and I'll say the book in just a second, but I read the book years ago and I reread it last summer and it resonated with me differently. <laughs> Funny how that happens. Um, but Bell Hooks, All About Love. And in there, Bell Hooks talks about like white supremacy, sexism, uh, systems of oppression brooded, being rooted in lovelessness and how if we're going to be about um, thinking about social justice, anti-racism, leadership, then it has to be rooted in love. And I was like, what, what a simple concept, but also what, I, what would be a transformative concept for our work, right? So what would leadership education look like if it was rooted in love? Um, so I've been thinking a lot about that since last summer of thinking about like how do we root um you know this work in love and um the at the end of the culturally of the at the end of the under we just did an undergraduate text as well kathy and i and our colleague erica weiberg and at the end of it we talked about critical hope right so like really thinking about the the concept of critical hope as a form of reimagining leadership and i think that speaks to this you know leadership education being being rooted in love um and i've been thinking about like how do i continue to transform my work um, so that is more explicit and, and not just in the in the subconscious or in the theoretical but how do how do we make that more explicit that leadership education socially just leadership education is rooted in love uh, Cameron so it's interesting because I've been reflecting quite a bit on Parker Palmer's work and so, you know, you had that experience with Susan Comabez. Well, I had an experience with Parker Palmer when he was on campus many years ago. And I was sitting in the second row and he was giving a talk. And um, he, and I was in this critical moment of faculty. I think it was right when I was going up for tenure. And I was kind of questioning my place. And, you know, like just, I think that happens quite a bit in faculty life. And, um, should I be a faculty member? Should I not? How does this look? And he was talking, um, you know, he's published so many great books and um, articles and just his thoughts, but he was saying about how if more educators were able to teach at the intersection of loving to learn and learning to love, that how transformative that would be. And I, I swear he was talking to me. He looked right at me. <laughs> I can visualize it. I literally got goosebumps and yes. And I had tears welling up in my eyes because I realized that that was at the heart of what I believed in as an educator, right? That intersection of learning to love and loving to learn and how that really has transformed my um, thought process, not only in my role as a faculty member, but in how I engage in, in this work and my approach to leadership. I actually just reread a book that he did every summer 
I love to read about 15 to 20 books and it just, I kind of go down these rabbit holes just because it's the time I can read. So I like to sit outside and read, but I recently reread um, healing the heart of democracy, the courage to create a politics worthy of the human spirit. And that landed for me differently because I read it a couple of years ago and I reread it, but the, the courage to create a politics worthy of the human spirit. And it was talking about how we might be different and have different political beliefs or beliefs in general. It doesn't even have to be about politics, but then how do we come together that's worthy of human spirit? And it takes me back to that intersection piece, right? That learning to love and that has really influenced and really has been central in my um, you know, approach to this work. V, what about you? For me, there's two things and I'll try to speak on them briefly. One is an older thing and one is a newer thing. Um, I tell my students all the time, I belong to the Ratatouille School of Leadership. So if you've ever seen the animated film Ratatouille, the, the take home message is that not everybody gets to be a great chef, but a great chef can come from anywhere. That is my guiding philosophy of leadership. Not everybody gets to be a great leader, but a great leader can come from anywhere. And I think when we walk around with that orientation, it completely changes the radar um, from what we expect from other people. The other thing that's been more recently informing uh, my thinking is uh, Isabel Wilkerson's cast. I'm reading it as part of a reading group of, of faculty here at the U of I. Um, and really what, what Isabella Wilkerson is talking about is not just racism, not just sexism, not just classism, but intersectional oppression and how, because we walk through the world with intersectional identities, forms of oppression hit us from intersectional places as well. And she refers to this intersectional oppression as casteism. And part of what she implores readers to do is to unlearn and work against the casteism that holds us down based on our configuration of identities, not necessarily fighting uh, discrimination and oppression one identity at a time. Um, it's a really remarkable read. I'm not completely done with it, but every night I go to bed angry um, because she's right. And it requires me to do more work to, to live some of the values that she's describing. It's one of the 15 books that I bought this summer that is on the list to read. <laughs> so good. It's so good. So we probably have time for just one last question before um, we need to wrap up today. So B and Kathy, what protects your hope for the future of socially just leadership education? Um, so I'm, I still look kind of young to the point where some of my students mistake me for another student. So that means I get to hear conversations they have that I wouldn't otherwise hear. And when I listen to the way they talk about their world, right? So not higher education, not leadership, just the way they make sense of what's going on around them is fundamentally different and I'm gonna say better than when I was a student. And so comparing the rhetoric of how young people talk about their world today as compared to when I was in their uh, classroom seats gives me so much hope because it's demonstrating that progress can happen, that change can occur, that what we do matters. And in the next 10 or 20 years, the conversation will be even further faster because they have us <laughs> alongside them, whereas we didn't have an us. Um, this, of course, assumes that we do more, more good than harm. Um, but even <laughs> when we don't get it perfectly right, they're still making progress. They're still doing so much better than me and my friends were at the same age. And I can only believe that's gonna translate into a brighter future for everyone. Kathy, how about you? 
Oh gosh, you're right. I'm in alignment with what you were saying. I, I think back to when, um, Tamara Bertrand Jones and Lara Osten and I were starting that Ash monograph in 2011. That's what I'm guessing. We started talking about that. That was published in 2013. And we were even getting pushback from different people about saying diverse students versus students from diverse backgrounds. And I think about how in the 10 years we've come far, but we still have a long way to go. Definitely have a long way to go, but saying like, okay, now we're able to have spaces and conversations like this. And so that protects my hope that people are wanting to engage and are able to engage. But then also, like you said, like students and how we can have more people collectively working towards this. And so that does protect my hope, especially when I think about what motivates me every day is I think about my daughter and, you know, she's eight right now, but when she gets to be our age, we'll say, how is that, how is she going to be able to navigate and move through this? And how is she going to not have to deal with the same stuff that we continually deal with, with the oppression, the inequities across the board, I mean, everything. And so that protects my hope. And I'm excited when I hear students, because I'm like, you're the future leaders. This is what we need. We need people alongside and have that collective movement. And so both of those thinking about how we're able to have conversations that we weren't 10 years ago, but how do we make sure we continue to push it? Don't want us to get, you know, <laughs> thinking we're good and complacent because we have a long way to go. But then also, um, how is that going to look for my daughter? Cameron, how about you? Yeah, mine, mine is, I think, similar to the both of yours is that student, a student's aha moment gives me hope. And knowing that that student's aha moment might not come in the 16 weeks in which I have them in a class. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really a Bible verse, but, you know, you, you're going to plant a seed and you might never see it, be able to water it, put sunlight on it or see it grow. But do you stop planting the seed? Right. Um, so that that's really what gives me hope that last summer I got an email from a student um in the height of the at the murder of, of george floyd um and it was a student i had at iowa state years ago it was probably like six or seven years ago that i had this student in class and she was writing to apologize and to thank me because she was like you would share things in class and i would roll my eyes or I'd be disengaged and i just want to say i apologize for my behavior and i'm doing some work and i just want to say that you made an impact i'm like number one i had to go look up the student to remember who they were to be honest um, and number two is like, you never know when it's just going to click for a student. And like, when I get things like that, that just gives me so much hope for the work that we do, especially around socially just leadership education. Cause you know, it's sometimes it's not easy, right? For a student and the student might be struggling with something that has nothing to do with us as the educator, but everything to do with them. Um, in some ways we're disrupting their, their ways of knowing and their ways of being, um, and that's uncomfortable. Um, but I know our work is important and continue to plant the seeds because that, that student is going to go out and be impactful whenever a sphere of influence that they have. Yeah, it's always nice to hear them come back and say thank you. But I also firmly believe that, that for every one that comes back, there's a dozen or so that are just, just doing it, right? Like they don't have to come back to me to say thank you. They're still doing the work. They're still living with the lessons and they're still trying to make that change that may, maybe they were like super resistant, eye rolling, arms folded, didn't show up to class. And then when they when they see it for themselves, it's like, oh, wait, you were right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So what you've heard today is a pretty good example of what you can expect this season on the NASPA SLPKC podcast. Please join us next time on Real Leadership for Real People, where we continue to explore socially just and culturally relevant leadership learning. Until then, leadership educators, keep it real out there. <laughs>